Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform. This episode is brought to you by the Ford Foundation, and we are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Gibbons-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. As you may know, over the weekend, we hosted an economic justice forum for candidates running for the 13th Congressional District seat. The event, hosted in conjunction with Detroit Action, was a huge success, and we hope to do more in the future. With us today, we have Brandon Snyder and Jennifer Disla, who are co-executive directors at Detroit Action. We're going to discuss some of the highlights from Saturday. Brandon and Jennifer, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. What up, though? Hello, yeah, official Detroit greeting. Jennifer's You can say what up though to Jennifer. She's talking well, about some I actually people. can't because Brandon Brandon always puts me on the spot on that one. So I'm still practicing my what up though. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's a little off the ball. Is this your first time on the podcast opposite um the Welcome, Jennifer. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so excited to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Tell us how this blessed day is finding each of you. Donna, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, um, came to a weekend um, spent at Heart Plaza, celebrating us at Heart Plaza and um, fighting people in my head and whatever and, and um, with my pen on Facebook who are complaining that we're back at Heart Plaza because apparently downtown is for white people and we shouldn't be doing things in the downtown or something like that. So um, yeah, it was beautiful. I, I, I joked around, I said, I felt like I was in Wakanda. I mean, it was a beautiful, peaceful, loving kind of experience. Um, an amazing fashion show. I'm telling you, yesterday I got there and um, and you had these, um, who was it singing? Sheared. Um, Sheared. Sheared Sheer was singing and she had the whole crowd lit up and um, and then we had the honoring our ancestors. Um, it was really, really, um, really emotional when Ngia's daughter um, was the one and her face was there. And as she was there and they were honoring her, African dancers came on. I don't know who these young people were, but whatever African dancers we have at our show, we got to have them. They were live. They were amazing. It was the most wonderful African dance troupe of young people I've ever seen. So um, it ended well. I did miss the very end because it was raining and I had been there for six hours and it was time to go. So I missed seeing um, um, the poet. Oh my goodness. Jessica Caremore. Oh, Jessica, Jessica Caremore. I missed her performance i heard it was magical rock and roll black yes women. yeah 
Yeah, um, I also want to acknowledge, I think in that, in that uh, honoring the ancestors portion, a uh, longtime Eastside resident and volunteer at Eastside Community Network, Miss Oyin Zuri, uh, better known as uh, Miss O. Uh, we found out uh, last year that uh, she had passed away from some health complications, but we found out uh, very late and we had already missed her uh, memorial services. And so uh, Donna was there and was able to see Miss O uh, be honored in the way that we would have loved to have honored her um, had ECN and the extended family at ECN had known of her passing. So just want to uh, acknowledge her as well as, uh, again, uh, Miss Ngia Kai's uh, daughter who passed away during the planning of this event. And Miss Ngia still pulled off uh, an amazing African World Festival. And I wanted to say this um, to those folks who have opined about uh, the leveling of a $15 fee for the African World Festival. Uh, before you opine, I, I want to urge everybody to just listen first. Listen and glean some knowledge and wisdom, especially from Njia Kai, who's been the events organizer for years on and off. We had her on the podcast last week, and she explained to us and our listeners why there was a $15 fee that was being leveled. She explained the fundraising challenges that the right has come up against and how much the festival costs and that Heart Plaza ain't free and, and, so, and, and so many other things. And she leaned into the criticism. She accepted it. And so I think that um, we are always so quick to you know, lash out, complain, or lever leverage. I'm sorry, level critique. But sometimes my my admonishment to those of us in the public square and in the marketplace of ideas is to engage in radical listening first, please. And radical please. respect. Um, I know it's, it's just radical respect. People put a lot of effort in there, and it's so easy to throw stones. Um, can they do things better? I mean, Jamon Jordan has, um, you know, one of these posts where he just lays it all out and then reminds people, you're not a member anyway, but, um, can they do a better job? Yes. But I, I've seen people say, you know, they need to have more exhibits like, you know, the DIA as though they are funded like the DIA and not understanding the constraints of an African-American museum and the fact that we're so blessed in Detroit to have our own. I was, I'm traveling earlier this year to New Orleans, no, no offense to my people in New Orleans, but I went to the African-American Museum in New Orleans. Yeah. And it was a house. And yeah, there were about house. 10 paintings up. I was like, what? What? I would... <laughs> if I had known I was going to a house with nice paintings, look like what Dr. Um, Wright had founded maybe, um, you know, 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, but, you know, it's still a house. We have an institution that really um, perpetuates um, some, well, share so much history and, you know, so much pride. And the pride you saw among everybody, little kids who were dancing. I just loved watching those little babies. There were so many cute little babies there. Um, so we can be um, helpful, supportive people who say, let's do this a little bit better next time, or we can just tear other people down. And um, we have a tendency to tear down our own, and it's upsetting to me. And I don't know if you've been downtown since the pandemic, but Black people have reclaimed downtown. We it's everywhere. our city. It's our city. It's our city. <laughs> and we everywhere down there. Brandon and Jennifer, how y'all doing? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think 
you know, Jamon's post is 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 exactly where my head is at. Is that like you know, if you feel if you feel a certain way, become a member of the uh, of the Charles Wright, and then like it's not free. So you know, the work that they put in is not free. It's an act. It's a it's a act of uh, care for the community, and you know, just like social media gives folks too much of an opportunity to critique, but not to listen or not to offer you know places where they can meet in the middle. And so it's it's really. You know, really good at y'all lifted it up. Also, really jealous that y'all were able to get down to the uh, to the African World Fest. So I saw I saw the pictures. I saw the pictures. Y'all, were, it was it looked great. Yeah. It was lit. It was so lit. I went on Saturday. It was great, and I ran into Mama Ngia, and she. It was just so good to see her. Uh, yeah. Jennifer, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Orlando. Yeah, similar to Brandon. Um, really jealous that you guys were able to go, but was able to see a lot of pictures on social media of people that had went. Several of my friends really enjoyed the exhibit and brought their family members to it as well. Um, and then I think, you know, as far as the museum goes, you know, as someone that who's moved back to Detroit in the middle of the pandemic and had the opportunity to revisit the museum um, recently, it, it's always been a good grounding of just sort of what it means to be Black and what it means to be part of the Detroit history. And so I definitely feel that yeah, as you guys have been talking about, we should just have the ultimate respect and admiration um, and have the ability to be a positive uh, influence in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love it. All right, y'all. It's time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of this week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. We got an update. Monkeypox update. Cases grow to 13, the Center for Disease Control says. Donna. What say you about this monkeypox thing? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, <laughs> you know, once again, I object to the name monkeypox and the World Health Organization promise to change the name, understanding the racist undertones um, whenever we say monkeys or something like that. We use that to describe a disease. And really, this thing got popular in Europe. But it seems as though there's always that green monkey or some monkey in Africa that is blamed for everything. Um, so I think that they need to change the name. Um, I think that we need to make sure that people have access to the smallpox and or the monkeypox vaccine. Right now they're being rationed and we know there are some people who may um, be at a higher risk. And so getting the vaccine to those people should be at the top of our minds. Um, and I'm not sure that we're rushing that. Um, I read that, you know, you have to be pre-selected even to get it, which speaks to um, you know, obviously it's going to, it, we'll have lesser accesses of people than others. I'll just say that. Um, and there's not a lot of transparency around that. Um, there's not even transparency on where the cases are. They say that they're in um, Oakland County and Detroit, but not specifically how many are in each place. Um, and we aren't learning much about the identities of the people who have contracted monkeypox. There is a lot of informal um, suggestions that these are gay men. Um, but, you know. How did, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how did it become a gay man's disease? Like, well, I mean, that's what they said about HIV AIDS, that it was a gay man's disease. But um, those gay men, there were people who were injection drug users. There were people who um, were having sex, you know, without gay men. Um, but when it gets characterized as a gay disease that allows people to kind of morally step up and say, well, they need to stop doing what they're doing and they won't get this, or this is God's will. And I'm really concerned about the lack of action on part of public health to prevent it. If it is 
a disease that's more commonly found among gay men? Can we put some of that data out there so that we can understand it? And also, can we make sure that gay men have access again to the vaccines that we know work? Yeah, right now there are about 12,500 cases worldwide, 13 uh, specifically in the state of Michigan. And we, 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 have, we have seen pictures and understand what, how those symptoms show up. And of course, as I said last week, I know I don't want anything to do with it. It is treated with uh, two, uh, two vaccines that are injected uh, simultaneously. And so we want to remind everybody that, um, you know, be careful, uh, direct contact uh, with the infected area is how it is uh, 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 transmuted to, or trans, uh, transmitted, there we go, transmitted uh, to the person, much like uh, the chicken pox. Um, if you remember the chicken pox growing up, I still have my scabs because I used to uh, run away and hide in a closet and scratch for my mom to find me and I'll get in trouble. But um, the, you know, this is something to look out for. Again, the city of Detroit is telling Detroiters not to be alarmed by this, but uh, also to be, vigilant, but we are still not clear on uh, where every case is right. um, and who those folks are. And so I'm with Donna, we need, we need to figure out uh, and drill down on that data and release it. Right. So keeping in mind that there is a monkeypox vaccine, there's also a smallpox vaccine. And the smallpox vaccine reduces cases in 85%, is supposed to be 85% effective, which is you know, more effective than most of the COVID vaccines. So we need to push both um, and try to address it. I know that there are some risk factors because they're using live virus in the smallpox vaccine. So, um, you know, if people have weakened immune systems, it may not work. All right. Next up on Hot Takes, the City Hall's Detroit ID program, and it seeks a new vendor amid data sharing worries. You can find this story on Bridge Detroit dot com by Malachi Barrett. Donna, what say you? Um, well, you know, I'm wondering how many people actually got these um, Detroit IDs. That's one of my questions. I remember we tried to enroll people in Detroit IDs and we didn't get many takers. Um, but, you know, um, obviously um, we don't want these I this ID um, these, this Detroit ID program to present risk to people at risk of being deported. We don't want to participate in the type of tracking of people that leads to the reduction of their civil rights. So I'm glad the city is taking this step. And, um, you know, I hope that they find a program that is willing to protect privacy. Yeah, catch this. The city in late June has stopped taking applications from people who do not have a social security number in response to the report that found federal immigration officials could potentially access data collected by third-party companies to target undocumented people. The program's initial pause came two months after it relaunched following a two-year hiatus during the pandemic. And so um, if you, uh, and maybe we should, we should, Angela Reyes at Detroit Hispanic Development Corporation, we are extending an invitation to you to appear on the podcast. This is something that she brings up a lot. Number one, uh, she she prefaces it by she prefaces it with essentially two statements. 
folks in Southwest Detroit are Detroiters and most of them have been in Detroit for decades, right? And so uh, we, we can, she, so she says, you know, stop with the immigration population characterization of all of Southwest Detroit. That's number one. But number two, there is a population that exists within Southwest and other areas in the city that are undocumented. It is unconscionable that federal officials can use uh, this municipal ID program that was done and presented in good faith to help uh, folks who reside in the city of Detroit without Social Security uh, numbers, access services in and around the city of Detroit, right? We know that the city of Detroit um, has not always been on the right side when it comes to uh, surveillance technology and data sharing concerns. But for this program, I am happy uh, to see that the city has halted uh, this program. But I, I'm with Donna. I, number one, I want to know um, how many people in the city already have municipal IDs? And the other question that I have is, are federal officials uh, able to access uh, the data from folks who already have participated yes. in the municipal ID program? That's the yeah. question um, that, that, needs, uh, that needs to be answered. Uh, community right now is in support of the city halting that program until they can figure out uh, data and privacy concerns. Brandon, you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, uh, Detroit, Ac Detroit Action has been a part of the coalition, you know, for municipal IDs, you know, over the last seven or so years, you know, when this campaign was launched by, you know, folks like One, uh, One Michigan and DHDC, you know, it also impacts and matters to folks who are homeless and people who are undocumented because of uh, situations of, you know, being evicted, being foreclosed, being displaced, being formally incarcerated. And so one of the challenges that, you know, our community and, and you know, we've had over the years, you know, Donna was saying like how she knows me from, you know, when we were working out of Capuchin. So like one of the challenges that we've had for years is just the city taking the effort to acknowledge and advertise you know, how a municipal ID can act as a, a foundational tool, a foundational document for folks as they're trying to get, you know, their documents back together. And they just don't take the time to do it. So, you know, I, we applaud like the city for pausing and we don't want to expand the surveillance community, the uh, surveillance tools that they have, you know, any longer in this city. So, you know, it has, they have to find a vendor that actually will work for the community and actually won't, you know, sell us out and sell our data to the highest bidder. So what we found when we were trying to enroll people in the Detroit ID was there were still a lot of um, barriers to people getting the documentation needed for the Detroit ID. And so some people just felt like it was not really adding value. What was the unique value of the Detroit ID in comparison to a state of Michigan ID? I mean, the, the goal of how they articulated it was that you could get to, you, you can use that, you use that tool to have that as a foundational piece to get a state ID, to get your secretary, your social security card, et cetera. But as you said, and as, you know, as we've experienced as well, is that many folks wouldn't be able to have, to, to be able to get the ID from any of the vendors, or there were secretary of state branches that were like, huh, what is this? You know, we're not, we're not taking this. So I think that that's been one of the biggest challenges that we've seen just on the, uh, the organizational side with the city is that, you know, this and, and, you know, actually communicating with the state, actually communicating with the various secretary of state branches and making sure that they're offering this and making sure that there is an actual unique 
advantage to getting one. Yeah, as well as other institutions uh, right. that, you know what I mean? Detroit at work being, you know, one of those um, institutions and some, some, some other institutions around the city that the, the, the municipal government has partnered with to be able to add value to folks right. taking and having this municipal IDs, even young folks, right? Yeah. Um, who were trying to, you know, have be a part of the Road Detroit Young Talent, the summer work program offered by the city of Detroit, a municipal ID was acceptable. And so uh, there was value. We need to, we, <laughs> I'm so sick of uh, black and brown people being surveilled and our privacy being violated. Like it just, it just got to stop. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. That is going to wrap up hot takes. If you have pieces that you want to discuss from Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. All right. Um, so over the weekend, uh, Authentically Detroit Eastside Community Network and Detroit Action hosted the Economic Justice 13th Congressional Candidate Forum at the Stoudemire located inside of the Eastside Community Network. Let's let's run down who all showed up. We had two panels. The first panel consisted of Sherry Gay Daniogo, State Senator Adam Olier, uh, Portia Roberson, uh, Michael Griffey, and John Conyers. I almost said the third, but when he was on a podcast, he corrected me. His name is John Conyers, all right? That was the first panel. The second panel consisted of uh, Sam Riddle and Martel Bivings, who goes by Bivings. Um, and it, we also extended invitations to uh, Lori Rutledge, Sharon McPhail, and Shree Tanadar, all of whom declined to participate. All right. Some of, some of whom declined at the very last minute. Very last minute, yeah. At the very last minute. Who? Some of whom confirmed and then declined. And then declined. <laughs> we can name names if y'all want to be petty. I don't care. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. Lori Rutledge is the only one that we understood would not be there prior to Saturday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There we go. There we have it. All right. So, uh, y'all, uh, it's, on, it's on Twitter and it's on our Facebook pages, uh, you can view it, you can hear it, uh, and we're gonna release it. And it should have been released by the time this episode comes out as a podcast of Authentically Detroit. All right, so tell me what y'all thought. How did the candidates do? Uh, I told Donna this morning that I was proud of how we did it, but how y'all feel about us? How did we do? Tell me, what are y'all initial reactions to what happened on Saturday? I definitely think we, we did an awesome job. <laughs> we asked really good questions that impact our communities, that impact the 13th district. We had community members in the space and in the room. You know, I think one question that really stood out to me as both someone that lives in the 13th district and as someone who struggles with student loan debt was the student loan, and as a black woman, is a student loan question. Um, you know, some of the candidates that were running said that, you know, that it was, it was fine for those who maybe didn't finish school, but uh, did it. But for the most, for the most part, everybody else should just pay their loans. You know, the reality is that we're living in a in a very different type of economy in this moment with inflation, gas prices, and groceries going. That um, I know, I myself personally, um, and many of my community community partners would agree that student loan debt would be a huge relief to cancel all student loan debt. Um, so that was one that stood out to me, but I think we did great. 
Um, and hopefully we'll get some more. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll figure out who I'll vote for by the time I put in my absentee ballot, but uh, I'm still decided. Yeah, I'll tell yeah. you what though. That, I want to stay on that student loan question because, um, you know, people can hear, this is not me making it up. Um, hopefully you'll listen and for yourselves, but we have one candidate who says, I make $360 an hour. Thank you. Um, but I'm not going to share my resume with you, but I make $360 an hour as an attorney. And um, someone said, you know, you, everybody doesn't make that. We'll go to law school. I mean, it was sort of um, dismissive of the real hardships um, because uh, the I, hardships. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Donna, not to interrupt you, but why aren't we saying names? Okay, let's say names. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's say names, You're right? This is on public record. They said it. That's right. Michael um, Griffey said that he makes $360 an hour. And, um, and I really feel bad. I don't think he should win because he's not going to make $360 an hour if he becomes a congressman, right? So um, I appreciate his willingness to take such a severe pay cut. Um, but he said he makes $360 an hour and he doesn't think he deserves to pay a student debt. Listen, if you don't want your loan forgiven, by all means, keep paying. I hope that there's an option for people who um, are moralizing about this, that you can keep paying if this is what you think you should be doing. Um, I don't think anybody would stop that. But the arrogance involved in telling people to go to law school, I just want to um, just disentangle a couple of things. First yeah. of all, there's a wealth gap between black people and white people, right? That's and right. that wealth gap also contributes to a student loan gap where we have to borrow more money. And so by forgiving loans, you're actually helping to close the wealth gap by helping black people who can make money um, generate the kind of wealth for their families. And I'm not even talking about wealth, I'm talking about stability. Like you're not always at the, you, um, at the risk of having, you're not paying more for lending because your credit scores aren't quite as good because you're struggling to make that payment plus your house note, plus your car note. Um, and that's not just for people who didn't finish college. That's for many people who did finish college who struggle. So it was dismissive and disrespectful to me. And the tone in his response was not something I appreciated. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think I'll double down on this even more is that like one of the things that really upset me by that comment was that, you know, many of the, the economy has drastically changed, you know, both in these last two years and the last 15 years or 13 years since I've graduated uh, college. And then over the last, you know, 20 years since many of our friends, families, et cetera, who were, and, and you can go back and you can go farther. Like the cost of, cost of one of colleges, you know, increased. The cost of you know our jobs and, and pay is stagnant, and meanwhile the uh, the balloon that we can see to see this bubble continues to expand, and so I, I really thought that that was just an out of touch question or response, and I think that like when you when you hear stuff like that you know it makes you wonder like you know if you know and, and I know we've got a couple of examples like that, that throughout this 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 uh, candidate form of like of, of folks you know and their responses that may have been not grounded in reality but the thing that i question as a person who runs a community organization who's been working for a nonprofit and worked for a nonprofit since i got out of college is like will you fight for me will you fight for people who look like me you know everyone like you said everyone is not going to be able to go to law school and make 360 an hour everybody's not going to be able to make x number of dollars to be able to pay off their student loans some people are some people have gone to college got masters you know, got uh, PhDs and will never be able to pay off those uh, those two loans because they're making jobs that are under fifty thousand dollars and not fifty dollars a year. A black man, a black man who's gone to college, a black man who's gone to college earns the uh, earns the equivalent of a white man who finished high school. 
still. Right. And when you look at the economic um, benefit to Black people for masters and PhDs and even doctors, um, it, there's a gap. And the other thing about law school is law school is so incredibly expensive that people who graduate from law school are burdened by extreme loans. So let's not pretend like every, first of all, everybody who went to law school is not making $360 an hour. Everybody does not work for this law firm, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, you're in this white shoe law firm. You have a whole lot of people who are working and really trying to make ends meet just like everybody else with a tremendous loan debt. And that's the same with medical students. It's the same with other black professionals who have really had to rob Peter to pay Paul and keep on doing that um, through their lives. So I think that it was an insult. And um, I think we just need to call that out. But you signed a promissory note, according to Martel Bivings. And so when you have signed on a dotted line, then you have obligated yourself. When you sign on a dotted line at 17 years old, <laughs> at 17 and 18 years old, you have obligated yourself and you have said and promised to pay that money back. When I was 18 at the University of Michigan, they were giving credit cards away at, you know, one state street for people if you wanted a free pizza. Like you get a free pizza, you get this credit card. Like what, what business do I have signing up for any of this stuff? Like, so I just, it, it makes no sense that that logic, like that promissory note the conditions that you're walking into from the economy, et cetera. So, you know, I thought I at least appreciated Bivings being able to be keep it real and say, look, under my conservative, my strict conservative principles, the government is not going to intervene. I think so many of our, um, Griffey, for example, danced around uh, and, and, you know, and played to conservative principles without wanting to actually name it, that these are the things they believe. He didn't want to stand with the Republicans fully, but just, you know, in principle, which is why I think the Detroit News has endorsed him as a candidate who um, can bring everybody together, you know, whatever. Um, so that was that was just really interesting to me. I want to highlight something was my pet peeve during the sure. entire debate. And that was a question about homelessness. Um, yes, one candidate, two can one candidate hit the ball out the park, and the other one did really well. Um, Adam Olier and Sam Riddle both really treated homelessness as something other than a mental health issue. It is so upsetting to me that we start off talking about inflation, we talk about the rising cost of housing, and then we talk about homelessness. It's like all of a sudden we have amnesia. Three questions ago, we acknowledged the fact that people need to make more money. We talked about the minimum wage needing to increase. One candidate even pointed out that $25 an hour was the fair wage. When we talk about homelessness, all of a sudden it's, why don't we get these people help? And because we continue to stigmatize homeless people, not that we should stigmatize people with mental health disorders any more than we stigmatize people with diabetes, it's a disorder, right? But to continue to treat everybody who's homeless as though is somehow related to their failing to live up to whatever standard we have, as opposed to our community failing to produce adequate housing is really, really um, problematic. It was. And, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would venture to say this, I would posit this comment, and that is uh, people... Uh, I don't I don't think a lot of people become homeless because of mental health issues. I think homelessness produces mental health issues, but you know, living in abject poverty and systemic racism and so many other factors that are are things that produce homelessness. And so to reduce it to that, I think it's a cop-out of answering um, you know, the real question. Sometimes I wish we can ask, we could have asked 
follow-up questions, because then let's talk about uh, the emptying of a social safety net that funded mental health programs. Y'all want to talk about mental right. health, but ain't nobody funding uh, mental health, and right? Go ahead. They did talk, they did touch on that. A few of them did touch on that. I just wish that they had touched on that and then also talked about the undersupply of affordable housing, which is a grotesque feature of every American city right now. And there's absolutely no commitment right now to increase the supply of truly affordable housing. I even hate to use the term affordable housing because affordable housing isn't affordable. Um, you know, I tie it to Hope Six. Hope Six um, was the vehicle to demolish almost every public housing development in the United States under this idea that poor people should not have to live together. And that's great. You could have taken the same money and invested it in public housing to make public housing nicer and more habitable. But instead, this housing was demolished, 100% funding from the federal government to demolish housing, and then only a partial amount of funding to rebuild housing and then to uh, mix that housing with middle income and poor people. Um, so a lot of the people got these Section 8 housing vouchers, and they were able to leave with these housing vouchers, but those housing vouchers died with them. It's not as though the vouchers that were created through the demolition of Section 8 just stayed in the marketplace. That was a temporary fix. And then you ended up just creating concentrated poverty in neighborhoods that were either in near end suburbs or near the former housing developments, depending on what city you were in. Um, so we need more public housing. And, you know, I think Adam Ollier did say that. I think that he, um, he we, only we, because, and I think he said it, and I think that became a part of his talking points, Donna, not to cut you off, because we pushed him on an interview on Authentically Detroit. Uh, beyond the frame of affordable housing, what happened to public housing infrastructure in the city of Detroit? What is the Detroit Housing Commission doing and what is Congress doing, right? Yeah. And so I think he learned. <laughs> I, believe, I believe in universal section eight. I think the section yeah. eight should be like food stamps or the bridge card. If you fall below a certain income level, you qualify for a voucher. 100%. And I think I, the one thing I was going to add to the points that y'all already made was, you know, I disagree with a lot of the points that Adam makes around housing. I think that a lot of his solutions, you know, you know, favor developers. I think a lot of it favors, you know, wealthy. But in terms of the answer around homelessness, by far was like one of the most thoughtful ones. In terms of like, how do we get, you know, to, um, you know, actually affordable housing and, and low income housing? You know, that that is a case where we need to develop and build, build, build. And so, you know, incredibly thoughtful on a lot of stuff like that. And so. I appreciated him taking it seriously and like not just reducing it and you know down to like you know these folks are 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 you know have have mental health issues and we should just you know and and we and we should figure out from there. It's like an actual issue around economic justice that we have to tackle. So when you talk about the homeless housing, um, a lot of people really talked about somehow increasing access to bank loans, and um, and a lot of people really talked about home ownership as this ideal that they would try to restore. What are your thoughts around that, Brandon? And what specifically did you have concerns out about regarding um, OLEA's answers? Uh, so I'm going to try and be brief because I, I, I heard my uh, my setup is, is giving feedback. But I think that, you know, parts of those miss the boat. Like when we think about like, you know, home loans, like what am I going to do with the home loan if I'm, if, if, if I'm unhoused, you know, if I'm actually on the street? You know, what are we doing to actually make sure that one, service providers are, you know, being accountable, that they're being, you know, treating folks with dignity, that they actually have money, 
they actually that that they, that you mentioned they talked about like universal section eight that we actually have these programs for tenants and that we actually aren't discriminated against the type of income that people are using when they try to rent mm-hmm. so i think those are the things that miss the boat um i think a lot of you know again it goes back to like the the developer sort of mindset like some of those things are not the end point when we talk about the fact that there's a lack of quality, uh, a lack of access, a lack of access to low-income housing, a lack of access to, to um, affordable housing across the board. Because, you know, we've had, you know, some, we've had developers who, in fact, rigged the systems. We've had banks who are actually getting, and other prospectors who are actually getting over on the system. So that that's been, that was one of my challenges, I think, broadly with like the with like the response and a lot of his responses that we that, that I've heard. But I do think that like in in terms of like being attentive to the to the question and you know and actually addressing it not just from a you know from from a sort of a misplaced lack of ground to reality i think that he was like the most in the ballpark if you will jennifer how are you hearing the responses to uh the question about houseless uh citizens in the 13th district yeah i i share the same sentiments that you all already have expressed i guess for me like you know, I think about my hometown where I grew up in New Jersey and in Jersey, um, it has a lot of the community that I grew up in called Kearney had a mixed income community where we did have public housing in our part of our community. And then the further you went out closer to like this other community, uh, the tax practice increased, but the tax, the, the diversity of tax base helped with like public and social net, social net services that you were talking about earlier Orlando right and so like as we think as we think about Detroit and like a Detroit for Detroiters as I would say you know how are we also including Donna you talked about these you know the uh, section 8 vouchers mostly being utilized outside of Detroit and so like how are we and like we see that um ultimately when we talk to folks um in Oakland and Oakland and other parts of Wayne County that they had to leave the city because they just couldn't find anything affordable or anything that would take the Section 8. And so the reality is, is that why should Detroiters be displaced um, in this moment? Um, and I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't feel any candidate really addressed that in their questions as the 13th District um, representative to talk about what does it mean to have a community that can actually be invested and like long-term and talk about generations living in the community instead of being displaced, which I feel is a big issue in Detroit right now. Yeah, I'm not sure we asked a question that would have, um, you know, in in fairness to them, maybe I'm not sure people saw a direct tie-in. I do wanna say that around Section 8 vouchers, um, and you know, in Sweden, they don't give Section 8 vouchers. They just pay the rent. (laughs) So they just, you know, call it section eight like you know creating this voucher system it's like creating the bridge card we're not putting the money in your hands we're just going to give it to you in this way to restrict how you use the money because we can't trust you to use this money responsibly seems to be the answer um in detroit one of the reasons that you can't find quality affordable housing is that the housing in our city is aging and so um somebody's going to have to have the intent of fixing it up for section eight purposes if you had a universal voucher system, then you would have an incentive. People could go to the bank and say, you know, these are going to be my customers, but you don't have that now. 
I think it's important also to understand that Detroit did not become the blackest city in the United States, and we don't have this poverty segregation by accident and by lack of government policy. Our government policy causes segregation, and there's people who choose to live in islands of prosperity and exclude people who do not look like them. That's why public transportation doesn't take you into some communities, because they don't want you to even have bus access to where they live. So I think that the idea that you can create these mixed income communities by giving poor people vouchers is um, mistaken at best. I think that we have to really acknowledge the fact that, um, that, that unless we hold um, developers in the suburbs and others accountable for, you know, for inclusion, you're always going to have segregation of wealth as well as race. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's and it, it, it's, it's, it, it all goes back to like, how are we actually thinking about like social housing as like a common good, like the, at the end of the day. So agree, 100% agree. Yeah. On the lines of uh, housing and displacement, Jennifer, I loved your question about uh, climate change and undoubtedly, you know, climate change uh, is going to force a type of climate migration. Um, especially, you know, to the state of Michigan, where we have the largest freshwater supply in the world. But even climate change and climate migration in and within the city of Detroit, especially if you're living in a floodplain or flood zone. Um, Jennifer, talk a little bit about um, how you heard people's uh, reaction to the question about addressing climate change if they're elected to the, uh, the congressional seat. Yeah, I think I think most of the candidates answered pretty well in the sense of jobs. And, you know, one candidate even went off to say that it should be union jobs and that it should be secure jobs and that also training for the transition of, you know, from the current jobs that we have to which which, jobs. which which candidate said that, Jennifer? Oh, I, uh, I think it was John Conyers, maybe. I think it was John. Yeah. Because John, you know, Thanks, John, John made you repeat the question. He made sure he was going to respond. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, can you repeat that question, please? John. He was pulling out those debate those those debater skills. Like that was that was I was you impressed already by know. That. You already he know. had his pad right there. Wrote, he was like, wrote down the question, moving please. John, John was the most serious person up there, I'm telling you. <laughs> But in all seriousness, though, like I did appreciate hearing the fact that, you know, to make these strong union jobs coming from my union background, um, you know, I grew up in a union household. Um, I also uh, worked for 10 years for a local union. And, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that like union unions do make a difference in regards to the job and the, and the workforce. And so I think that was good to hear in connection to climate change. I just I, I don't know. I, I felt there was. Um, there wasn't a lot of conversation in regards to the migration, but I don't think we actually right. uh, framed the question in that way. Agreed. I think that, you know, um, one of the answers I heard, and I, I'm trying to remember who it was, it may have been um, Martel, I don't want to get this wrong, who might mention that these green jobs are already generating high salaries. And so, you know, and that's, that's true because whenever you have a scarce labor force, you're going to pay them more. But the question is, when these jobs are no longer scarce, what is the protection? Surely you have to pay a, um, you know, solar installer more when it's hard to find one. But when they become, you know, more commonly, if we really create this green workforce that we need, how do we protect them once you have um, abundant labor? And that's the... Yeah value of that. The other thing is I didn't really get a strong sense of people understanding the need 
for um, supporting unionized workers who are displaced by the shift to renewable energy. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing that, that was like missing in a lot of those answers was like, how are we going to mobilize the resources at the federal level to make sure that we are creating the type of green jobs that are needed? Like right now, you know, you know, there are scarcity, like you said, scarcity means jobs, but we need to be able to create those jobs tenfold. And we need to be making sure that those jobs are in black and brown communities because those are the communities that are being directly hit. So you see it in Detroit whenever it rains is that our basins are flooded. It would be great to be able to have a green workforce of folks fixing basements and fixing the, um, the, the greenways. That way our, our neighborhoods aren't flooded in Detroit and Dearborn, et cetera. But these aren't the things that we are hearing from folks that, that were representatives. We heard pieces of it, but I think there is like, there wasn't a depth of what, of understanding from, from a lot of folks around like, what does you know, climate change actually mean in the hood? Yeah. One thing Michael Griffiths kept saying is, um, it's not, it's who do you think will answer your phone if they're elected? I kept wondering why he thought he would be more likely to answer my phone call than anybody else. <laughs> I was like, I mean, that's a Donna. interesting campaign line. <laughs> Man, you read my mind. I was like, answer my phone and then do what though? So, Donna, that's, a, that's a great point. And it, segues into, it segues into this next question that I want to ask the panel on the uh, right now. And that is, you know, this, this fiery question about money and politics. <laughs> Donna. And I'm so sad I had to walk out the room for that question. I'm so sad because that was the one I was most looking and forward to. And you didn't to. have to walk out the room. You just got so, somebody just quit coming and you were trying to change and then it was oh my goodness i wish you had been there go on i'm sorry no, no Donna, i want to know how you were hearing it because you oh know, my goodness I, I mean michael kept saying that to the point of he he will be elected to serve who is funding not- michael griffey i looked at the campaign reports and i didn't see many detroiters he is definitely funded by a lot of elites and if you look and see where his big belt billboards are they're not in the hood okay so this is one of those things that's dark money. We have to worry about dark money, but we also have a lot of money that is not dark. And sometimes you don't get the dark money just because you don't get the endorsement. You know, but people, if, all, if you get a union endorsement, that's not dark money, right? And to right. quite Emily's list with APEC is that's insulting right. to every single woman sitting there. Um, I, I thought that, you know, so he, that was a dig at Portia Roberson. And I thought that she started to answer well when she said, but she said, I don't know if I take the money. I'm like, yes, take it. Right. Because it's Emily's list money. That's what Emily's list is trying to do is trying to put a certain person in office. They are clear about who they are and where they stand for. I don't know. If, but anyway, APEC, and that was Adam Olier's, um, um, Burton, I don't, he's very good at not answering, giving much airtime to questions he doesn't want to answer. So that went by really quickly. Um, but it's kind of hard to defend that on a progressive agenda. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. And, you know, the, the glaring comment that I remember in response to that question is, Bivings say, I'll take dark money, lot of money, red money. That was my favorite, that was my favorite quote by, by, because it costs money. It costs money. I'll take all the money. Take that, all the money. Take that was, all the money. That was by far the funniest response. I'm telling yes. you, um, the, the first debate had a lot of substance, but that second debate was the, the second <laughs> yes. part was the funniest. Yes. 
I had to restrain myself from laughing continuously between, you know, Sam Riddle playing the dozens and Martell just being Martell Bivings. So I was like, whoa. Can I, you know what? Uh, and while we while we were talking about money, I wanna I wanna say this. I wanna say this publicly. I wanna say this publicly to folks who are wishing to uh, be elected to public office. Stop asking journalists for money. Stop asking journalists to support your campaign and stop asking us to give you money either directly or indirectly through family members. It's not integral and it is irritating. Stop it. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Yeah. And now that I consider myself a journalist, I'm not giving money either. Okay. So I had to sign some paperwork saying I was not endorsing. And so, you know, the purpose of this is not endorsement. It is just to observe what yeah, we correct. saw. That's correct. Um, so let's talk. I want to make sure that we hit all of the candidates. Because well, 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 okay. Just just one quick, just one quick money in politics thing. So okay. to Martel right. Bivings point, it costs a whole lot of money to run for office, but we have to be we have to be very intentional about where this money is coming from. And we have to also understand that like non 501c4 perfects don't give directly to candidates. They influence on the outside of elections and they are there. They take unlimited amounts of money, so, which means that they are unaccountable. In many cases, unaccountable. Some of these, some of these, not some of these 501c4s, it's unaccountable. So it just, it, that was one of those questions. I was like, all right, do, do you get where this is coming from? Like you are the, no one's saying that APAC is going to put 50K in your hand. Maybe they do, but through some other means. But but most cases, this means that they are creating a atmosphere that is that where they are able to drown out noise through unlimited spending. Well, what they put it out in APAC also is giving in the campaign between Stevens and Levin, right? Yes, so, they're, they're, um, they've they spent they spent over a million dollars just in the la these last two weeks right. in that race. And he is the Jewish candidate of the two, right? So that's um, correct. Yeah, that 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 part was um, you know interesting. I'm not saying Donna, that there's Donna, any no. substance to that, but it's just kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I think I think following Orlando's suit as far as uh, my TED talk, you know, my TED talk is definitely one that you know I would love to see a day that we can actually have some representatives talk about and think about what, what would it mean to actually not have to run a campaign that costs all that money so that everyday folks can actually run run for office. Um, and, and then we can have some real elections as I would like to say. I like that. Didn't, my, didn't, didn't, didn't Sam Riddle win? Um, Martel Bivings said, I'll take all the money. Um, Sam Riddle said, I've, got, I'm, I've taken care of you. I'm, I'm supporting, I'm going to support um, the fact that the federal government pays for all elections and you don't have to rely on and you can't take yeah. any donations or something like that. P yeah. Public financing of elections. Public financing, and, yeah, public financing. Yeah. And, and which is funny is like, I appreciate Sam for bringing that up. That was one of the um, yeah. charter amendments that we uh, that we pushed for the city charter a couple of years ago. So that, you know, that's a, that's a need both at the federal level and the local level when we yeah. talk about our elections. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was it was good. I think you're absolutely right. I think that who was it who talked? I'm trying to remember in the first phase, talked about the fact that, was it Portia Roberson? And I'm really bad, um, who was talking about the fact that you don't have people from all walks of life being able to run for office because of the cost and the fact that, um, you know, in a real democracy, in a real strong democracy, um, people could run for office based on their ideals and based on their strengths and their interests and not based on, you know, their pedigree. 
I think that's who it was. Yeah, and it, especially when you have right. a candidate that's self-funding, you know, at least $5 million, who, you know, who's a gazillionaire who is able to self-fund, you know, the campaign. I think that is, that is, that is definitely problematic. Um, and I'm willing you know, to be accountable to the people on Saturday, right? If, if I'm self-funding and I'm spending millions of dollars, then certainly I can answer some questions, right? <laughs> Unwilling, that's, unwilling that's to Shree be a cop. If you were wondering who declined at the last minute, Sri Tanadar declined during the first debate uh, when we and, were- And cause, causing Brandon to have to leave the debate <laughs> to try to address this change in lineup, which is really, really unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Well, I, no, I, I'll, just say, I'll just say this, is that like, you know, I appreciate them calling me and telling me that they're watching the debate. And like, but like, that's not where we needed you, you know, he's <laughs> not in front of the computer. Oh, they were watching you know, actually it? In they were watching it, yeah. Oh, that's why he declined. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and you and know, listen, as Sam, as we Sam in advance, but I knew, I was like, these are not going to be easy questions for people to answer. You're going to have to put some thought into it. Thought into they it. get them Sam a day in advance that you're running for office. We did not throw out, you know, softballs here. Where, why That's are you right. running for office? No, we didn't ask a single person why are you off running for office, right? Sam Riddle is like, you know, wherever I am, Shree doesn't want to show up. So Shree, you got to show up because Sam <laughs> thinks he's scared of him and that's not good for politics. <laughs> you know, I want to I, I talk about this. There are some fireworks throughout both forums and, you know, kind of went off the rails a little bit in both forums. So we had to sort of like, you know, reel it in. Talk about talk about that style of debating in politics is it effective do people do people does that does that kind of uh back and forth appeal to a segment segment of the population sherry gandayogo uh continued to go after portia and her record working for mayor mike duggan and she continued to go after adam's uh state uh legislative record um while he was in the house and now in the state senate um and we, you know, we, you know, it got a little crazy at one point. And how, what do you guys think about that? I just wanted her to answer one question all on her own and give a detailed response of what she would do for Congress, as opposed to using every question as an opportunity to take pot shots at the person sitting next to her. And just this instance was Portia Roberson. And she came with her hardest. And then she began each, each response with, I don't have anything about against Mike Duggan. You think I have something against Mike Duggan? And then she, you know, once again, digs in. And, you know, she drew applause for that because, um, you know, everybody likes, the, you know, that that's her style is I'm going to draw applause by um, attacking other people. Um, her style is not, I'm going to draw applause by, appealing to people's needs and interests, and it's a concern of mine. Yeah, I agree with Donna. I think ultimately, I mean, it's one thing if you're talking about solutions and like you're giving a comprehensive, you know, um, answer to like that solution oriented about the questions that we're asking, and then maybe highlighting the other candidate. Um, but the fact that she spent most of her time mostly highlighting the other candidates track record, but didn't talk about, especially in those moments that you're talking about, Orlando, didn't talk about solutions to the question, um, you know, bring some concerns to me. Mm -hmm. Brandon, how do you, how do you feel? Yeah, the only thing I add to what y'all are saying is that, um, you know, people say, you know, aggressive campaigning, negative campaigning works because people pay attention. But I think what that does, to be honest, is like, that's, you know, that's such a cynical point of view. Like what it really does at the end of the day is like 
devolve things into a personality contest where it's mm-hmm. like, all right, who is the funniest? Who yeah. is the person who's gotten off the quickest line? You know, that's who I like versus like actually listening to substance. And so, you know, that's the part where I think is the most really frustrating in, in those in, in those instances. And I want to, you know, hats off to Detroiters. I don't think that we really respond with votes to candidates who do that. I think there's always going to be a segment of people who do, but everybody I've seen who's run one of those campaigns where they're, you know, taking digs at other people and using that as the center of their work don't seem to get very far. People want solutions. And so I think that it works inside of a crowd. You get your, you know, amen chorus cheering for you. But I also want to take a moment to, um, you know, express pride at us. Because those fiery moments never got out of hand. We were able to reel ourselves back in. And the candidates and their um, and their campaign leaders came up to us afterwards and said, great job. This was a great forum. This is the best one I've been in. One person said that this is the best campaign debate he has seen in eight or nine years. So I was trying to figure out which one he saw that was as good as ours eight or nine years ago. But... <laughs> Donna, your Virgo is something else. It's something else. <laughs> because listen, we were um, trying to um, have this, we're trying to coordinate with a, um, a station broadcaster to have this on television. And the question was whether or not we would be able to manage this professionally, whether or not we could get people in a room, these people in the room and stop the infighting. And we did. And we asked substantive questions. So it was interesting. I think that the pot shots didn't really help to sway people. When I talked to people after the fact about where they stood, um, I can say that um, most people were not sure what they were going to do. Oh, well, that was going to be my next question, Donna. I was going to ask the panel, um, do you feel like folks who were undecided could now make a decision like did anybody win anyone over or is did anybody solidify like yeah uh if you were voting for if you were vote already had in your mind who you were voting for did they lose your vote or did that was the vote solidified how are y'all feeling about about that yeah i live in the 13th district like i said earlier and yeah i'm i'm still i'm still a little bit up in the air so i will i will be still doing my homework there's some people that might have come off my list, but I'll just leave it at that for now. I'm in the same boat. I think some people might came off my list, but I think that, you know, Detroiters are smart. They, they want somebody who's going to fight for them, somebody who answer the phone and actually meet with them. And also, I think that, no, that, that you know, that, so does that mean okay, you're Michael. voting for Griffey? Because he okay, said, Michael, that is not, 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 but not just, not just answer the phone. So definitely me, 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 Probably my vote. He probably won't risk my vote. But uh, nonetheless, I think that, uh, like, you know, people want somebody that's actually going to fight. Like, the reason why Rashida Sleeb is so successful and so well liked in the district is because she shows up, throws down, you know, figures out where the resources are, what people need, and tries, to, and tries to, like, make it happen. Like, she isn't just a talking head. And so, like, we need somebody that's going to complement that and actually fight for our community. So I'm going to be honest, um, when I first met with um, Rashida, when she was running for office the first time, we had uh, an event for her and she and I had a pretty um, thorough debate, we'll say, on issues of housing and the vis- uh, the need to produce affordable housing. 
and whatever. But I think the thing about Rashida is she fights with substance. She doesn't just fight um, to make points. She fights with substance and she also listens mm -hmm. and she cares. And you can see that. Um, and so, you know, um, everybody will say they will fight for you. I'm more interested in the person who's going to listen. Um, I want to tell, ask you, um, so anyway, I just want to say that. Um, so as for me, I already knew where I thought, what I thought about people. Orlando and I had interview opportunity to interview five of the people prior to this um, event. And so um, my opinions were not changed afterwards. I will say um, that the dark horse, the person I think who definitely came across stronger than expected is John Conyers. Um, that a, is- a, a surprise, a nice surprise. It was a nice surprise. He came across stronger and more substantive than expected. And we had to repeat every question twice for him. So it was probably like twice as long as it needs to be. <laughs> but, you know, he came across as, as strong. And I think that in the second form, the Sam Riddle really did have great answers for a lot of the questions. And I had to nod my head a lot. Um, um, the only thing that we were questioning was whether or not um, the Pulse Institute is truly internationally um, celebrated as, you know, and then, you know, today, seriously, today, and you know, the Pulse Institute, is that Bankole Thompson? And so yes. today- we don't, we has, don't say that name here. Well, I'm saying it because today he has this headline and I just think we need to call this out. It's so, um, when you talk about people being clear about who they are, his headline was, um, where is it? Um, that basically, he said that, where is it? Come on. Um, oh, GOP must drop Trump to hold Whitmer accountable. This is the Pulse Institute. I haven't read that yet, but that's a ridiculous headline. It's a ridiculous headline. The internationally known Pulse Institute, you know, founder has put this out. I think that um, it's unfortunate, but I think that, that, um, that Sam Riddle had some good answers. I think that John Conyers was a surprise. Adam Olier is clearly an experienced debater. Um, you know, Portia Roberson was strong in, um, in her responses, especially the level of attacks at her. And Sherry was sitting right next to her. I was like, oh, I don't know how this is gonna work. Even Sherry was like, how can I attack her if I'm sitting right next to her? Um, but it, was, it did not devolve into a housewife's kind of thing. And um, Portia maintained her poise throughout. Yeah, and I like that. I like somebody with the level head who can, you know, be swayed. Sometimes you you want them to be swayed. Like when uh, President Obama was in office, it's like, man, sometimes you were ready for him to like get with him. But, you know, Portia maintained uh, her poise. One question that I wanted to make sure that we did uh, highlight um, in our wraparound discussion is the question about the carceral system. Mm. Uh, I think it uh, it, it is... Um, an important question, you know, Black folks make up 13% um, of the population in Michigan, and we are overrepresented in the Michigan prison population, over 50% of the Michigan prison, uh, you know, population. So we asked uh, the question about, you know, how, how can we, number one, how are you looking at uh, gutting the 1994 uh, crime bill, and how are you looking at restoring full citizenship uh, rights for returning citizens. And interestingly enough, and I didn't know that John was coming out the gate like this until we interviewed him on the podcast about being a, 
a son to a parent who is incarcerated. Everybody knows his mother, uh, former city councilwoman Monica Conyers, uh, went to prison for you know a period of time, and he sort of he sort of led that charge even in his opening statement. Um, and came across strong and came across knowledgeable. What do you guys think about the answers to that question? I thought it was interesting. I think it was John, if I'm not mistaken, that talked about reparations and the framing of reparations in regards to the carceral system. And, you know, um, I thought it was really interesting to see what, yeah, what would it look like um, that now marijuana, a substance that, you know, was illegal uh, years ago, and is legal now, what would it look like for the folks that suffered under, under that law um, to, be, to, to get reparations of some sort, um, to, be, to ma be made whole? Um, because they didn't have the same access that we have now. And it's, you know, for me, it's, it's definitely a law that should have never been on the books, especially given that it's legal now. Um, so I think, I think it, did, it did really, some John's answer to your point, Orlando, really did um, interest me and, and made me think harder in regards to what are some creative ways to, to rectify the situation around the carceral system. I also thought it was interesting, I think it was Adam in regards to the jail that was closed down mm. um, his response to that. And, you know, I'm definitely all about closing, closing down um, prisons and I'm an abolitionist. So I'm all about getting rid of the carceral system altogether. And I think, but ultimately though, we need to think about what are some real solutions for the community and what are some real solutions for folks that are in the system to not have to, to, not have, to have a heavier burden put on them um, in, in different ways. So yeah, it, it was an interesting question, interesting, interesting answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 100% agreed on, um, on like, Adam's response around like, you know, we need more prisons closed. Like, you know, I'm, I'm an abolitionist. I believe in like, you know, we need to decrease our our, uh, our stock of prisons and um, jails and, you know, decrease our stock of police and move that money towards to, uh, human services resources over time. Um, because, you know, the prison system is uh, demeaning to, to folks, demeaning, you know, overall. And I thought that like his answer was succinct. It was. It was good. It was shocking that he was. That, that's actually one of his visions too. Is like we need to be. We need to have fewer prisons. So but, appreciate that. No, but it was a caveat. Yeah, it was a caveat to it. Yeah, and this is where I, I think Sherry and John went after Adam, and it is because it is cost prohibitive for Black families in the city of Detroit to travel to the UP uh, into Northern Michigan to see, you know, their loved ones. Uh, who are uh, in the carceral system where the Ryan facility was right here, um, you know, in, in the city of Detroit. And so, yeah. you know, it's- plus, 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 I mean, you know, they get counted in the UP census. Yeah, and those are the dynamics, so I think like- Plus, like, plus yeah. the, 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 the employees live and work in the UP area and it boosts the UP economy as opposed to boosting Detroit's economy. So I think the only thing I would say is if I were in those shoes and somebody came to me and said, let's close Ryan facility because whatever, would I suggest maybe we close something else instead if this is our objective? Um, yeah. There's too many times when um, when Adam is voting against the grain, 
and he justifies and explains it. But I think that there are questions that remain unanswered after those justifications. Yeah, Donna, I agree with you. I but I, I will say, like as I said earlier, like closing down closing down the prison as an abolitionist was is definitely within my values, and having real solutions to what it means when you want to be. Um, a returning citizen or want to uh, or want to pay restitution to the crimes that you do to a community looks needs to look different in our country and in our city yeah. so yeah um, and and, yeah. and that's and that's the part that's the only part that i, I want to lift up too is that like it's a caveat because to, to you you kind of took the words i'm always like if you close down the prison in detroit you close down ryan all right so what are we doing about the prison in um iron um you know, Iron Mountain or, you know, what are we doing about those ones where it's nine, 10 hours away for families to get there? What are we doing to make sure that we aren't having prison gerrymandering happening? What are we doing to make sure that we actually have the services that, uh, that, that Ryan provided, you know, around, you know, ID birth records, you know, GED training, et cetera. So I, I think that that's, that's, it's, 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 it's too simplistic to just say, oh, we're closing it down without actually being a for real abolitionist to talk about, all right, what are we doing for community at large? And, 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 and to, even if you're saying I'm an abolitionist here, being an abolitionist everywhere, what's your timetable for closing them all down, okay? But when you have, you're, at, you're an abolitionist against Detroit prisons, that can leave questions in people's minds that need to be resolved. I want to also lift up Sam Riddle. It's a nuanced conversation. It's such it a is. I think it's yeah. a nuanced conversation. I'm not ready to condemn. I, I think there just needs to be, that's one of those things where we need to follow up questions like, how did you choose Detroit? What else was what else were the conditions and we couldn't get there. But I also want to um, lift up Sam Riddle. Sam Riddle is the only person who has served time in prison. And um, I think that him talking about how he got treated after the fact and how he is treated as a pariah needs to be lifted up because one of our questions, one of the points of that question was, um, was about, um, you know, uh, restoring full citizenship rights. Yeah. And, um, and full citizenship rights mean various things. Um, I can live free in my community perhaps, but can I get a job as long as people are allowed to discriminate against people who were formerly incarcerated? Um, can I get insurance? Can I get um, you know, a loan? Can I get so many things that my record may prohibit me from getting? So can I really participate fully as a citizen? Can I get housing, right? One of the questions, almost every housing application says, have you been convicted of a crime? And if you have, that's not that's not a good look, right? You have a credit score and you we already have so many barriers. So I think um, Sam raised some good questions. I thought, thought he handled it well. And I do want to lift him up because he was in the second panel, but I thought he had, again, some good answers that may be missed. I hope when people listen um, to the recordings that they listen to both panels because there were good ideas on both sides. And the question I have now is, only one person is going to be elected on or selected on August 2nd and then elected in November. Um, what do we do um, as Detroit Action, Authentically Detroit and Eastside Community Network to um, hold these, whoever gets selected accountable to the needs and the specific things that we brought up here? I yeah, think I think that, for the, oh, um, I'm sorry, Jennifer, but you know, I think we do what we've been doing, Donna, and that is engaging in rigorous questions with the folks who are elected and not letting them off of the hook. You know, one of the questions that Jennifer asked, and I think it was a great question before the debate began, was that amongst the moderators, who was going to ensure that 
the question was answered. And I think so often politic politicians, you know, take the politically expedient route of talking around a question than you know actually addressing it. And so I think I think for us, our role as a mediated platform um, and with 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 the pool that we have to actually call these folks and get them to show up is engage in rigorous interrogation and questioning um, on behalf of community, but also bringing community on. I think one of the most beautiful things that we were able to do this year thus far is have young people come on the podcast and question Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. I mean, <laughs> and that's not if that's not equity, if that's not leveling the, play, leveling the playing field, then you tell me what is, right? And so I think, I think, I think that is first um, and foremost. Jennifer, I'll cut you off, I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem, Linda. No, I absolutely um, you know, think hard in regards to what does it look like for accountability. And I think for Detroit Action, you know, we're gonna continue talking to voters at the doors, talking about this election and all elections that are happening on August on August 2nd, that's gonna impact our communities in Detroit and Wayne County and Oakland County as well, parts of Macomb. And we're gonna definitely have the opportunity to hold the candidates accountable by electing them into office, because uh, we're gonna put the candidates that the community wants into office that are aligned with our values. Similar like we did with um, this last election with city council, uh, with the city council where we were able to ensure that we had folks that were aligned with our values and now we have the right to council policy where we know it's the first step but it's a step closer to where we want to go um so we definitely want to see and, and um move forward in that way in the 13th district so one of the only thing about oh just just the last piece on that is just like and we're gonna show up on their door at their doors and at their offices you know at the day after the election because i think that um, for so many of our elected official friends and so many of the folks who are running, they believe that the job is done talking to community and engaging and making these and, and listening, you know, after they're elected. And for us, accountability starts with election day and, you know, doesn't end until you leave office. So what I would love to do is consider um, hosting annual forums where we invite our uh, elected officials back to the community and ask them questions about what is being done um, on these same lines and hear from them and let the community hear from them. Um, you know, I guess the question is less who is most likely to answer the phone when you call than who is most likely to come to your town hall when you call and answer to the community, you know, because anybody can answer a phone call. But I really think that um, I'm certain that we can get that response from um, the current congresswoman of the 13th district. I think the question is can we get that kind of commitment from? some of the others. I wish we'd ask that question because we definitely want to bring people back and let make sure they're listening and staying in touch with where people are, conditions change day by day, responding to questions about specific legislation and concerns as they move on. What do you think about getting together this time next year and asking whoever wins to um, have those conversations with us? I think that's do, do it. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Nancy Pelosi clap. I know. I've been, right. been wondering what that clap was. What are yeah, you, doing? you know, <laughs> I know a lot of you like that clap because I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> if Next, you'll be kneeling in kinchy cloth. <laughs> Lord, no comment. If you have topics that you want to discuss on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at Authentically Detroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. 
Y'all got people y'all want to shout out? I do. I want to shout out Njia Kai um, for an outstanding job at the African World Festival. I want to shout out all of the staff, volunteers, vendors, and people and performers and people who made that happen. Um, I was in um, a great space this weekend, just soaking up blackness in downtown Detroit. So um, shout out to her. And also I want to shout out, um, I, I want to get the name right. What is, what is her daughter's name? Indeka? Indeka? Oh Lord, you're going to start me the line. Down. Okay. Shout out Njia, um, Njia's daughter, who um, was her partner who was in, in the previous years responsible for um, helping to, um, you know, attract and coordinate a lot of the vendors um, and who passed away in June. Um, it's amazing to me that we had such an outstanding event and I saw her, she's such a tiny little person floating all over the festival. We actually talked a little bit on Friday, but um, shout out to her. Yeah, Brand, uh, Brandon and Jennifer, you guys have shout outs? Yeah, I have a shout out for Brandon. I know he's on, he's on, but my shout outs for Brandon, you know, for always holding it down, um, being being next to Orlando, the next, what is it, king of, or prince of Eastside, um, but definitely, <laughs> def Orlando's like, no, not me, not me, but no, definitely, uh, you know, really holding it down and, and making sure that um, myself by uh, coming into the community, being part of the community um, and having the opportunity to continue to grow with Detroit. And I also wanna give a shout out to Detroit Action Team for holding it down and being together with a Detroit Action Team and Detroit Action members um, for always holding it down. And, and you know we're gonna keep on pushing forward for the 13th district and all part of Detroit. Yeah, uh, I would like to shout out uh, our new full-time producer, Sarah Johnson, who was hauling in Panera bread bags on carts and carrying like the heavy stuff <laughs> and trying to, we had some issues with our stream. It wouldn't have been right if everything worked out perfectly, but uh, trying to troubleshoot that in real time, Sarah Johnson has already proved her value to us. Uh, shout out to uh, JG, y'all know JG, JG, uh, our trusted longtime uh, producer uh, who made us look so professional, right, mm -hmm. in our setup and making sure that we had enough mics. I mean, it was nine, we had nine mics live at one time and JG figured it out and we uh, were able to carry out an amazing event. I want to shout out our timekeeper for both forums, Davon Reader who was just, you know, just as cool as can be, uh, suited and booted with his his cards and making sure we held, you know, we held time um, and made sure that uh, we were moving it along as well as uh, I think the director of sustainability at ECN. Is that his title, uh, Donna? Ricky Ackerman. Um, oh, director who, of Climate Equity. Sorry, Director of Climate Equity, Ricky Ackerman. Uh, who was there and who was helped 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 us set up and gave us an assist wherever uh, we needed it. So uh, thank you, and to all of the candidates who showed up, who were bold enough and courageous enough to show up and to be questioned um, and held accountable. Thank you, um, and of course we hope to do it again soon. <laughs> all right, y'all, let's go do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, we want you to catch the wave.